Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. So today we are going to discuss the management of the post-operative patient admitted to the PICU. Our discussion will focus on the non-cardiac and non-transplant admission. Our objective in this episode is to create a framework on what areas of care to focus on when you have a patient admitted to the PICU post-operatively. Each surgery and patient is unique. However, we hope that you will garner a few pearls in this discussion so you can be proactive in your management. Without any further delay, let's get started with today's case presented by Rahul. A 13-year-old child, who we will call Alexa, with history of a genetic syndrome, presents today with the history of thoracolumbar kyphoscoliosis. Over the years, Alexa's curvature has progressively worsened, resulting in difficulty breathing and chronic back pain. The decision was made to proceed with a complex spinal surgery, including posterior spinal fusion and instrumentation. In the weeks leading up to the surgery, Alexa underwent a thorough preoperative evaluation, including consultations with specialists and relevant imaging studies. Pulmonary function tests revealed a restrictive lung pattern, while echocardiography showed no significant cardiac abnormalities. Preoperative labs, including CBC, electrolytes, and coagulation profile, were within normal limit. During the surgery, Alexa was electively intubated and closely monitored by the anesthesia team who administered general anesthesia for the case. The surgery was performed by the pediatric neurosurgery and orthopedics team with intraoperative neuromonitoring to assess spinal cord function. The surgical team encountered intraoperatively an unexpected dural tear, which was repaired using sutures and a dural graft. Due to the prolonged surgical time, a temporary intraoperative loss of somatosensory evoked potentials was noted. However, signals were restored, and after adjusting the patient's position and optimizing blood pressure, the signals did improve. The posterior spinal fusion and instrumentation was completed successfully, but the surgery did last for over eight hours. Total intraoperative blood loss was 800 mLs, and Alexa received two units of packed red blood cells and was on norepinephrine for a little over half the case before weaning off. So now Alexa is admitted to the PICU, intubated and sedated for postoperative care. The initial assessment shows stable vital signs with a systolic blood pressure of 100, heart rate of 90, and oxygen saturation of 99% on mechanical ventilation. Postoperative pain is currently being managed with a continuous morphine infusion. The surgical team has placed a closed suction drain near the surgical site and a Foley catheter for urinary output monitoring. You are now at the bedside for OR to pick you handoff. Rahul, excellent case. 
uh, to summarize key components from this case, this is a patient with thoracolumbar kyphoscoliosis who underwent complex spinal surgery, which was basically posterior spinal fusion and instrumentation. She had this surgery due to progressive curvature, breathing difficulties, and chronic pain issues. She had a course intraoperatively wherein an unexpected dural tear occurred, requiring repair with sutures and a dural graft. There was temporary loss of somatosensory evoked potential, which were resolved through patient repositioning and blood pressure optimization with norepinephrine. She had a moderate amount of blood loss in the case and is now back into the PICU, intubated, sedated, with surgical drains in place. So, Pradeep, we see patients such as Alexa in our PICU commonly. If we take a step back, what is your general approach with children who are admitted to the PICU postoperatively? That's a great question. I think it's crucial to approach the care of the postoperative child in the PICU systematically and proactively. This involves closely monitoring their changing physiology, anticipating potential complications, and collaborating with the surgical team to address any concerns. By maintaining open communication, and following evidence-based guidelines, we can optimize patient outcomes and facilitate a smooth recovery process for these patients in the PICU. Absolutely. And just as a quick tidbit, you know, while some of these PICU admissions are scheduled, there is literature to suggest that up to 24% of non-cardiac surgeries may result in unanticipated admissions to the PICU. A single-center study published in 2017 in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine looked at their rates of unanticipated PICU admissions from the OR, and they found that these children spend twice as much time on mechanical ventilation and the airway abnormalities, anesthesia factors, and intraoperative hypoxia contribute to such unexpected admissions. All right, Pradeep, we are now at the post-operative handoff. And the first person who is going to be giving report is the anesthesia team. Can you please highlight what are some key things to listen out for during their sign-up? And what are some of the questions to ask? Great question. The anesthesiologist plays a crucial role in ensuring the patient's airway and hemodynamics are properly managed during the surgery in the operating room, which is essential for a safe and successful procedure. It's important for the anesthesiologist to communicate with the PICU team regarding induction, intraoperative course, lines and tubes, as well as pain management. So let's go ahead and break this down a little bit more. For induction, you want to know what were the anesthetics administered and was it IV or general anesthesia? You also want to know, was it a smooth process or were there any difficulties during induction? And what was used for anesthesia maintenance? Next, you want to know about the airway. You want to gather essential information about the patient's airway management from the anesthesiologist. Find out if they used an LMA or an endotracheal tube during the case. If the patient was intubated, ask about the ease of bag mask ventilation and laryngoscopy, as well as the grade of the glottic view and the type of laryngoscope used if it was video laryngoscopy or regular laryngoscope was used. It's also important to know the number of intubation attempts. Additionally, gather details about the type of endotracheal tube that was used. Was it a cuff tube or was it a regular non-cuff tube? 
its size, and the length at which it is taped to the gum or teeth. Finally, find out if any airway adjuncts such as a nasopharyngeal tube or an oral airway were used during bag mass ventilation or intubation. Perfect. And remember that a key management point as soon as the handoff is completed is you want to get a chest x-ray to confirm ET tube placement and work closely with your respiratory therapist to secure the tube in the correct position. That is so true. As you wrap up anesthesia sign out, here are some things to think about. Oxygenation ventilation. Determine if the patient was easily oxygenated and ventilated or if they had any bronchospasm or laryngospasm that happened during the case. Lines and tubes. Inquire about IV or central access, arterial line usage, and the presence of any drains such as an NG tube or a Foley catheter. Eyes and nose. Understand the management of fluid, electrolyte, and glucose homeostasis during the anesthetic care, including a type and the rates of fluids administered, blood product use, and estimated blood loss. Pain management. Gather information on the analgesics, sedatives, and neuromuscular blockers, if any, that were used. Other medications. Be careful about antibiotics, antiemetics, and anticholinergics, and other medications that may have been needed during the procedure. Duration of the case and patient positioning. Obtain information on the duration of the surgery and patient's position, for example, supine or prone, as in spinal cases. Ensure that you have the latest set of vital signs recorded from the patient before coming to the PQ. Awesome, Pradeep. Thanks so much for that wonderful list of management points. I think a nice mnemonic, which I use, is A-PILOT. Let's go through this. A stands for airway. P stands for pain management. I stands for eyes and O's. L stands for lines and tubes. O stands for oxygenation ventilation. And T stands for time and position. Especially when it comes to access, coordinating with your PIC team, surgery colleagues, or anesthesia teams, if long-term access is indicated or any additional peripheral IVs that need to be placed intraoperatively, I think that this is extremely important to have that conversation ahead of time. Absolutely, Rahul. It is important for us to recognize that general anesthesia can cause vasodilatation And when combined with surgical blood loss and insensible losses, it increases the need for fluids intraoperatively as well as postoperatively. Factors like prone positioning and mechanical ventilation can also affect urine output, making it a less reliable indicator of intravascular volume. In the postoperative period, it's important to administer isotonic fluids to avoid hyponatremia and watch for SIADH. Additionally, since operating rooms can be cold, it's crucial to monitor the patient's temperature, especially in infants, to prevent complications like arrhythmias and coagulation disturbances from hypothermia. Let's transition, Pradeep. When admitting a postoperative patient to the PICU, what essential questions should we ask the surgeons? As we have our post-op patients in the PICU, we need to have a clear understanding of the type of surgery performed by the surgeons. Additionally, we should ask these key questions to ensure comprehensive patient management. Communication with all teams is absolutely essential. We have arranged this into organ systems, and while not all of these questions would be applicable to every case, this list is relatively comprehensive. This list was created by Dr. Rahul Dimania 
when he was a fellow. And I think it is an essential list that every fellow should use during their training. Thanks so much, Pradeep. So let's go ahead and organize this into various organ systems. From a CNS standpoint, you want to really dive into what are the acceptable pain management medications for the immediate post-op period. You want to ask your surgeons, can we consider a PCA? Are we able to use Toradol or other NSAIDs? Or should we stick to IV acetaminophen in uh, certain cases? You also want to ask your surgeons if there are any activity restrictions for the patient. Can they be mobilized early? When can we involve physical therapy or occupational therapy? Do they need a speech consult prior to initiating oral feeds? From a respiratory standpoint, ask when the patient can be extubated. If extubation is unsuccessful, can non-invasive positive pressure ventilation such as high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP be used? This is especially true for intra-abdominal procedures. Are perioperative steroids okay in case there is airway edema? Are there any procedures like MRI or a revisit to the operating room needed prior to extubation? Absolutely. And, you know, just to loop back a prior concept which we discussed, you want to know if the patient at minimum can be bagged mask or was the airway difficult? You know, if there is an acute airway event, you really want to set the expectation. Should the PICU team be the primary team to intubate or should this be an intubation by anesthesia or ENT? Now, from a cardiovascular standpoint, especially for neurosurgical procedures and even transplant patients, you want to ask your surgeons about target blood pressure goals, either via systolic or mean arterial pressures. If you haven't checked out these uh, prior episodes, I really recommend for you to listen to our post-operative approach to renal and liver transplant in the PICU. You can check them out on Apple or Spotify, as well as PICU.oncall.org. From a fluid electrolytes and nutrition GI standpoint, we need to ask the surgeons when the patient can begin clear liquids and when we can advance their diet. Because you know the parents at the bedside are gonna, going to ask you this question. Absolutely, Pradeep. And jumping into renal, you want to talk to your surgeons about when the Foley catheter can be discontinued as we want to mitigate any infection risks. Remember, this is essential when you're talking about a renal transplant patient. You also want to talk about urine output goals when applicable. So what you want to note is that another output needs to be monitored, and that includes your drains. You really want to keep in mind how much drainage will be coming out of your peritoneal, Penrose, CSF drains, etc. And I think clarifying thresholds of both you know, quality and quantity of drainage with your surgical teams can really help with effective recognition of postoperative complications. You know, coordinating a plan to replace any excessive fluid with a certain fluid type, I think setting that threshold early on is key. From a hematology standpoint, ask about the labs that need to be sent, such as a CBC coagulation profile, or even other labs such as uh, electrolytes, which will include a BMP or a CMP, and how frequently we need those labs. Are there any specific transfusion goals the surgeons want, or should we just follow the taxi guidelines uh, as an intensivist? From an infectious disease standpoint, we want to know what antibiotics were already prescribed and used in the operating room, and how long do they want to continue this antibiotic regimen. If the patient becomes febrile, we should know if the surgeons want cultures, or we should just watch the patient if they have no hemodynamic compromise. 
Absolutely, Pradeep. And so, you know, the summary for what we've talked about thus far, analgesia, airway, blood pressure goals, diet and activity, transfusion thresholds, antibiotics, and repeat imaging. So Rahul, there seem to be several logistical questions to consider as well before the patient comes to the PICU. Could you please highlight the key aspects for us? Absolutely, Pradeep. I think in this perioperative and postoperative period, it's important to address these logistical factors. You know, firstly, we need to determine when a patient who is going to be extubated, on room air, hemodynamically stable, and we're just monitoring, when can they be transferred out, especially if bed capacity is limited? Secondly, I think it's essential to really verify whether the child's family or guardians have been updated on the condition. And lastly, we should really inquire about any additional consults that need to be placed for the PICU team to ensure comprehensive patient care. We want to conclude this episode by delving deep into a few of the patients which are commonly admitted to the PICU postoperatively. Our goal here is to apply the principles of management we just learned. The first case we want to return to is our current case, which was the post-op spinal fusion. How does their pre-op status influence the post-op course? Absolutely, Pradeep. I think it's very essential for us to note that the post-op course depends on the pre-op status. Pulmonary function tests, degree of the spinal curvature, the extent of the repair. You know, the key concerns here are going to include paralysis, uh, pain management postoperatively, airway maintenance, as well as pulmonary hygiene, especially for the complex care uh, population. You know, the key here is to really work closely with uh, your pulmonary colleagues and respiratory therapists to coordinate an effective bronchopulmonary hygiene regimen while admitted in the hospital. As you know, effective airway clearance can optimize cardiorespiratory status. So Pradeep, what complications should we watch for due to spinal cord manipulation? I think the number one thing we have to remember is spinal cord is an extension of the brain. And so we need to watch for SIDH and check sodium levels, especially if urine output is decreased. A high heart rate may be due to pain. So check intraoperative records for more information about fluid losses before giving the patient a bolus of normal saline or LR. Absolutely, Pradeep. All right, so our next rapid-fire case, ENT or oral maxillofacial surgery procedures like tracheostomy, TNAs, supraglottoplasties, as well as airway reconstructions. Pradeep, what should we know about postoperative management for typical ENT procedures like tracheostomy or airway reconstruction? We need to get information on bag mass ventilation and intubation options in case of unplanned extubation. Check if non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is contraindicated in the patient. Be prepared for blood loss, post-op swelling, and airway emergencies with wire cutters and spare tracheostomy tube at the bedside. Absolutely. And I think that having one size smaller of a tracheostomy tube is also essential. So, Pradeep, how do we handle a dislodged tracheostomy in a patient who has a fresh tracheostomy placement? I think, Rahul, the operative word here is a fresh tracheostomy. So, we have to consult the ENT surgeons for a fresh trach that is dislodged. Forcing a trach during that time can actually create a false track in the pretracheal fascia. 
Some tricks may have stay sutures for guidance. Difficult airway patients may need deep sedation or paralysis until the first tracheostomy change. Now, in airway emergencies, it is vital to remember that what the patient requires is the oxygen and not a device. So instead of trying to force a device, say through a tracheostomy, etc., the patient should be given 100% oxygen via bag mask ventilation while appropriate help is summoned. And remember, asking for help is not a sign of weakness. Always call for help. Absolutely, Pradeep. All right, our final rapid review case are neurosurgical procedures such as craniosynostosis repairs, disconnective hemispherectomies, as well as drain placements. So, Pradeep, what should we consider in general for post-operative management of neurosurgical patients? So, I think we should be prepared for large blood loss uh, because, remember, the scalp is very uh, rich in blood supply, as well as the need for fluid replacement during surgery. So, we need to monitor fluid status very carefully. Uh, There are going to be pain management issues, as well as the patient is going to need close neuromonitoring in the PICU. Watch for facial and scalp swelling, as this may play into your airway plans. Also, keep a close eye on the amount of CSF drained, potentially replacing CSF if needed. Monitor serum sodium carefully, since CSF fluid is very rich in sodium. Absolutely, Pradeep. And I think that when it comes to uh, pain management, especially if it was a posterior uh, spinal type of procedure, kind of like near the neck, you also want to be thinking about spasms. And so sometimes muscle relaxants can uh, help in the perioperative period. So this is great. And what we've talked about are ENT procedures, neurosurgical procedures. But what I do want to highlight is any trauma or intra-abdominal procedures that be, may be admitted into the PICU. And I think it's important to focus on judicious management of pain, fluids, and electrolytes while staying vigilant for infection, changes in urine output, abdominal distension, as well as AKI in the postoperative period. And so this is where our job as a multidisciplinary PICU team is essential, because what we're going to be doing is monitoring for complications like ARDS, transfusion-related acute lung injury, as well as transfusion-associated high cardiac output states. Uh, This is going to be especially paramount if the patient had a massive transfusion protocol that was initiated prior to or during surgery. And so I think working with surgeons very closely is going to be key for these, some at times, hemodynamically unstable patients. And then one more point that I do want to add here is that working closely with your general surgery colleagues to assess return of bowel function helps you understand when the patient may be ready for nutrition. So Rahul, we have talked about some very important post-operative management points today. Can you do a quick summary for us? Absolutely. You know, I have three major summary points. Number one, no anesthesia details, induction method, airway management, medications used, and any complications encountered. Number two, ask key postoperative questions, pain management, activity restrictions, airway concerns, transfusion goals, and antibiotic usage. Number three, understand post-op management for specific surgery, spinal fusions, ENT procedures, and neurosurgical cases. Monitor for complications, 
and work closely with your surgical teams. I think it is essential for us to foster an open dialogue and collaboration between the multidisciplinary PICU team, surgical teams, and families to really ensure comprehensive post-operative care. Because what we want to really do is have the best possible outcomes and recovery for these patients. And, you know, in the literature, it's been really shown that having a structured handoff technique can help enhance communication. And that's why in our case today, we highlighted a bedside handover. Together, I think all of us can make a difference in the lives of our young patients. This concludes our episode on the post-operative child in the PQ. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.